This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 35, our final wrap-up episode looking at basic liver science presentations from the International Liver Congress 2022. Episode 35 reviews six basic liver science presentations related to fibrosis that took place at a session of ILC 2022 chaired by Scott Friedman. Scott joins us to lead the discussion on these presentations while Neil Henderson and Rachel Zayas join the regular surfers to provide their own perspectives and ask good questions. This conversation focuses on a paper discussing how circadian rhythms affect stellate cell performance and fibrogenic process. Scott discusses key findings of the paper. Neil Henderson confirms more generally that circadian rhythms are linked to fibrogenesis throughout the body. Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, and Rachel discuss some practical implications for patient care, while I ask whether any particular modes of action or pharmacologic agents or diagnostic tests might benefit particularly commercially from what this paper tells us. These conversations cover some challenging and exciting issues in basic liver science. They point towards continued explosive increases in what we understand about NASH and fibrotic process in the liver in general. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Scott Friedman. Although I've chaired many sessions over the years, this was one of the most exciting groups of presentations I've seen in many years. I don't know if it's because the science is just maturing, getting better, and or because there could have been a lot of pent-up interesting data that just is waiting for presentation. But whatever the reason, it was I was really jumping out of my seat from all the novelty and the state-of-the-art methods that were used, uh, all of which has a lot of translational potential, none of which is directly addressing treatments because those were the focus of other sessions. So in no particular order, I'm just going to give you an overview. I think some of the conceptual advances included using induced pluripotent stem cells to recreate stellate cells, tracking, and I'm going to go through these in details, of course, tracking the proteomics of different cell types to identify new therapeutic targets, uncovering a circadian clock within hepatic stellate cells, which to remind you are the fibrogenic cells in liver, beginning to zero in on the dynamics and the cells regulating matrix degradation in fibrosis regression and some new insights into how bile ducts get sick and start proliferating when there is injury. So maybe I'll start with one of the most surprising results, which was from a group at Strasbourg. The first author was Atish Mukherjee. He presented very compelling evidence that shows that stellate cells have a circadian clock. So now let me back up and remind everybody that we all operate under a circadian rhythm. The biology of that has been recognized with the Nobel Prize a few years back. Obviously, this is triggered typically by day-night changes. Disruption of circadian rhythm can be very unpleasant, let's say, and it can also disrupt the normal physiology of metabolism, homeostasis, and pretty much affects all of the body. Most of the biology around circadian rhythm has focused on mediators that are present in the central nervous system. Slowly but surely, it's becoming clear that tissues outside of the brain also have circadian rhythms that presumably are synchronized with the central circadian rhythm. But who would have thought that that included the lowly little hepatic stellate cell, a fibrogenic cell, that contains the same mechanisms and the same machinery to regulate circadian rhythm as all those more specialized neuronal tissues. And in particular, Dr. Mukherjee and his team have shown that the circadian rhythm is regulated by a particular pathway known as REV-ERB-alpha. It doesn't really matter what the name of it is, but really more the concept that the ability 
ability of this pathway to control the fibrogenic machinery is cyclic. And so at different times of the day, the signaling by a fibrogenic pathway, TGF-beta, can wax and wane. And that has interesting implications for the prospect of either regulating the circadian rhythm or choosing the right points in the circadian rhythm so that antifibrotic drugs might be most effective. This relates to a paper that just showed up last week unrelated to liver, but rather to cancer, that showed pretty convincingly that when breast cancer spreads, it does so mostly at night. Uh, And that has important implications for when you might optimally treat with uh, cancer agents. And so the same may be true for fibrosis, not only in liver, but everything that happens in liver fibrosis turns out to be relevant to kidney and lung and other tissues. So I just thought it was a fascinating discovery that was, in my view, very convincing, has some implications for turning off fibrogenic machinery, trying to mimic the circadian rhythm, which can be done chemically, and somehow boosting the efficacy of drugs when we get them, uh, based on the fact that we know that the fibrogenic or matrix-producing activity of the cell is cyclic. So I'm looking at Dr. Henderson and wondering what what he makes of all this. Neil Henderson. Yeah, thanks, Scott. That's absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to look out for that work when it comes out. When you were discussing that, just pinging a memory I had of some work that I I was merely a co-author in and, and involved in that came from Manchester in 2020 in lung fibrosis and that was on reverb alpha and again as you say mesenchymal circadian clock and interestingly when they played with reverb alpha genetically and manipulated it in non-mesenchymal cells it didn't have an effect on a bleomycin model of lung fibrosis so you know as you say suggesting that for whatever reason circadian regulation within the mesenchyme is, is quite a powerful regulator of the fibrotic process. I mean one thing knowing what you're like and your depth of knowledge in fibrosis, why do you think we've evolved like that? What do you think that's all about in terms of why we might scar in a circadian regulated way? The only answer, which is a semi-educated guess, is that it may be a way of diverting nutrients at different times of the day to different cell types to meet the energy needs and the functions of the cell. So in general, I think about fibrogenesis as a pretty energy intensive or energy requiring activity. And it could well be that the energy required to make scar is more readily available at night. So that's one potential reason, but that's, a, as I said, an educated guess. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I remember from the lung work that I played, a, as I say, a minor part in was they looked in the UK Biobank and certain circadian markers such as sleep length or chronotype and shift work were associated with fibrosis, pulmonary fibrosis. It'll be interesting to see, Scott, you may know or others on the call may know, but if anyone's looked at that type of demographic information in the context of human liver fibrosis, I'm unaware of that data, but somebody may allude to that. Jörn Schattenberg. Let me jump in quickly here because I was going to mention that. Thank you for the nice overview on that. Fascinating paper, Scott. I think there's a lot of evidence showing associations of disease severity in patients working at night and night interruptions. So from the clinical perspective, there's always been the association of shift work leading to more mostly metabolic abnormalities and more obesity, more insulin resistance. So for me, to look at this was always more the metabolic drivers in patients that do work at night or do not sleep as well drives that liver disease. Now with this abstract, it, as you highlighted, Scott, it tells me that there is actually a liver or make it more clearly, precisely stellate cell aspects of day and night rhythm, which could be responsible for those differences beyond the metabolic control, which has a lot of implications. You know, when do you drink? When do you eat? And potentially also, when do you apply a drug in the future? And I think uh, for that, uh, this is fascinating by all means and a very interesting study. Yeah, I mean, the 
question I didn't have time to ask and wanted to add to the investigator is whether the circadian clock is disrupted when you immortalize the cell. So just to remind folks what that means, there are normally cells have a defined number of replications before they become senescent, and that's been known traditionally as the Hayflick limit. One of the powerful features, maybe the most powerful feature of an immortalized cell is one that the cells don't undergo replicative senescence. They just keep multiplying. And, you know, we've been advantaged by that because we've created some cell lines. And you can do that in different ways. What we've done is to overexpress a mutant of P53 and block P53 activity. P53 is a powerful growth suppressor. So if you block the P53, you can often immortalize cells. So we've used those lines. And it does tell me that if, if in fact, immortalized cell lines have lost the circadian clock, that could be an advantage or a disadvantage. A disadvantage because you're no longer replicating the cyclical nature of fibrogenesis that one would expect to see. Frankly, we don't even know if in non-immortalized cultured cells they retain the circadian clock, although it looks like they do based on the work in this paper we're discussing. So, you know, again, it's a way where we're trying to really dig deep and understand all the nuances of a model, whether it's in an animal or in cultured cells that may influence the response to drugs or other perturbations. Just cool stuff. How, Scott, how would you foresee, or maybe the, the author commented on it during the presentation, therapeutically manipulating this axis as a potential therapeutic, say, for NASH? They actually had a compound, and I can't remember the mechanism, but I think it's a clock disruptor and showed that the cells were responsive to that in terms of fibrogenesis. So that would be the obvious way. The other thing one could think about is timing therapies so that they overlap with periods or times of maximum responsiveness. Again, the cancer field is way ahead on this for obvious reasons. It's very important. There's also, in the cancer world, there's use of light box therapy, mostly for mood, but one wonders if jump-starting or, or amplifying the circadian rhythm using UV light could also have an impact on both cancer responsiveness, but maybe fibrosis as well. I'm getting out over my skis here because this is really not my area of expertise, but I just had to comment on it because I just thought it was so unique and interesting. So, Scott, you talked about what that might imply in terms of when do we medicate and maybe a little bit about what the goals are. Did anything in that presentation or give you a sense as to whether one mode of action might make more sense than another in terms of what we're looking at here? Yes, quite, because what they focused on, and I glossed over it, but what they focused on specifically was TGF-beta signaling. So again, TGF-beta is the mother of all fibrogenic cytokines. And so when you understand TGF-beta in a cell type and how it's regulated or activated, you understand a lot about how that cell makes scar. So they were wise to focus specifically on that pathway because the implications for fibrosis are so direct. I think I got that out of the presentation. Like I said, somewhere between a quarter and a third of it I got. That was part of what I did get. And I was wondering if that makes it easier or more difficult to educate physicians. I mean, when, when you get out past the researchers and you get into how does all this get adopted in the treating public, right? Circadian rhythm, concept people get. I'm not sure they, you know, it takes some work to help them figure out how it gets here. But what else can we use this to do besides drive better research, do you think, in terms of teaching, treating physicians over time, what the benefits of this notion? Let me add something quickly here before Scott puts this off. I mean, we're seeing some aspects of chrono medicine here. We're seeing time-restricted feeding, which has benefit for insulin sensitivity. That's been shown. There's been some tries in NAFLD, mostly calorie content impacts. But if you do adhere to certain time restrictions, in particular, avoiding late-night meals, there are effects. And I think it's fascinating to think, as I said, that there is more than metabolic control that actually regulates fibrogenesis in the liver 
here through that mechanism. I was going to say something very similar. We, we already, I would say, personalize our instructions based on either the patient or the drug. It's very common. You have to take a drug on an empty stomach or a full stomach. You should take it at night and not in the morning. I think all of those recommendations are either empiric in the case of night versus morning or based on the impact of food in the stomach affecting the absorption or the activity of a drug. There is one other major, I would say, influence on circadian rhythm, and that's the microbiome. So uh, we've talked in previous sessions about how there's increasing evidence that the microbiome impacts uh, or may promote or protect from NASH. Perhaps part of that is through its impact on the, on the circadian rhythm. Louise Campbell. Can I ask a dumb question here? Or it may be dumb. The circadian rhythm is predominantly viewed through the eyes and obviously the type of light that we receive at the different times of day is my understanding of the circadian rhythm. And we use it in nursing. If you only have your observations taken once a day, we use the 6.30, 7 o'clock in the evening for the t- best temperature, the best blood pressure, so we can use it to our benefit. But for those who are blind, how does circadian rhythm particularly work? Is it, Could it be a benefit? Could it be a detriment when we talk about fibrosis and the sort of things that circadian rhythm can affect? Because I've enjoyed this presentation immensely. It was the bits that weren't addressed for me that obviously stimulated my thought process. Well, I'm no expert on circadian rhythm. I do know that the circadian rhythm of uh, blind individuals is disrupted and it can be very troublesome. They, at least in the U.S., some of you may have noticed, they actually have a TV ad for some therapy, and I don't know the mechanism, to reset or maintain a normal circadian rhythm in blind people. So I think it's a real phenomenon and it can be very disruptive. And I think in the end, you know, the impact on metabolism and the human health, it can be very serious. Rachel, you looked like you were going to ask something. Rachel Zayas. Yes, I, lo- I love this topic. I think that there is going to be a universe of research and, and development that comes out of this field. One thing I was thinking about is if the liver architecture in regards to the human genome, transcriptome, proteome, etc., oscillates during the day, it begs the question, does this have a implication on how we're developing biomarkers? So when would you ever ask a patient to come in at 10 p.m. or at some odd hour in an inactive stage or in the rest versus active stage of the day? So it begs the question, is there intra-variability between a single patient with NASH and cirrhosis? So I wonder if that's ever been considered in biomarker development, not even in the clinic, but just from a research standpoint. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? It's a great point. I have no wisdom except to say that it's probably something we should think more about because if you're trying to validate a biomarker either in the same patient, which is what you're emphasizing, and certainly across patients, it may matter a lot what time of day their tissues are analyzed, whether it's circulating blood or liver or something else. Yeah. And this, you know, this topic really relates to something that Louise often brings up, that when a patient comes in and they're fasting or they're not fasting, sometimes that can have a implication on the kilopascals from the fiber scan. So I wonder if these are correlated time of day as well as fasting versus non-fasting state. These are definitely related to circadian rhythm and triggers of, of, along this 24-hour period. I welcome anybody to work on, on this research who, who is listening. Yeah, I would just add in there, Rachel, that I think we're remarkably unsophisticated in the way we've looked at this as a community over the years. And, you know, it would be fun, wouldn't it, to take one or two of your favorite liver fibrosis markers and literally measure them every three hours in the same person for a 24, 48-hour period and see what the variability is like. And coming back to the point about microbiome, I think that's a really interesting one, isn't it, in terms 
terms of it's hard to conceive how the microbiome effects on the liver might not be different when you have a big meal and your portal vein blood has very different constituents coming into your liver than when you're fasting. So I think it's a great point. What we do know, you know, with NASH progression is it's non-linear. So, you know, it's like a crocodile's back in terms of it can wax and wane, even though progression can be upwards trajectory over time, it, it waxes and wanes. So I think the point you make is a really good one and, and something we need to think more about as a community in terms of also what gives you the most accurate measurement, what you know, human condition at the time gives you the most accurate measurement. So yeah, more research needed there, definitely. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, July 13th. I'm pretty sure I know what we're going to talk about, and it's a major news story, but we haven't completely firmed it up yet, so I'll leave you in suspense. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>